This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. To episode 5 of the Practice of Learning Teams. This is your host Brent Sutton. Today I'm being joined by Kevin Furness. I first met uh, Kevin when he was uh, Vice President Head of Corporate Safety for AP Moller Maersk. Kevin is one of those unsung heroes of safety differently. He's been quietly working away in the background bringing about change in safety culture and safety across organisations. Kevin's diverse background across industries includes things like manufacturing, construction, utilities, communications, and his last role was in transport. During the conversation with Kevin, we'll explore how his journey started, where he believes the opportunities for learning comes from, what he thinks makes a successful learning team's facilitator, what have been some of his challenges so far, and his thoughts about the future of learning teams. We'll then talk to Kevin about his new business, his new role in adaptive safety, which is helping organisations improve their safety performance. So please now join me as we have a great conversation with Kevin Furness. Welcome listeners to the next episode of the Practice of Learning Teams. I'm being joined today by Kevin Furness, who's in uh, sunny is it Barcelona, Kevin, is it? Yeah, yeah, we're in Barcelona. As you can see behind me, the sun's setting just about now. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a uh, good time to be. It's a good time to be in this part of the world. That's great. And listeners, I, I met Kevin all uh, February last year, February 2019, at Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Um, at, uh, I think it was called, was it the, the Big Discussion? Something like that, yeah. The, I can't remember what it was. Something like that. Yeah, Conklin and and Shane Bush ran this thing where they brought people who were like-minded around thinking about the new view on safety and hop and learning teams and and had a big discussion. I think there was about about 30 or 40 of us in the room at the time, I seem to remember. That's right. And I I remember um, being a good Kiwi and and obviously, of course, you know, um, making my commitment to the Commonwealth. I brought over my own tea bags. And, oh, that's something that you know, we we Commonwealth people do, and we Brits love a good tea bag. So you know, good, that's good, where good, we. Good. I think that's where we bond. We bonded over tea bags, Brent. I'm sure that's it was correct. absolutely. And and I remember some of the comments we made. Some of our American colleagues were, were couldn't understand where we were and what we were doing. No, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was all part of the fun. So so <laughs> yeah. don't mention I'm the Commonwealth. Okay, so um, Kevin. If you could share with the listeners, um, you know, how did your journey start with learning teams? How did it all come oh, about? Um, let, me, let me take you a long, long, long way back. Um, I, and, and, I, and, and this is quite a sort of a, um, a journey that I've only realized very sort of in the last two or three years, Brent, actually. But I guess my, my learning team journey really started back in the 1980s. And um, I worked in, uh, in, in a Japanese um, organization called NSK. And uh, they were very much into sort of Toyota manufacturing, lean manufacturing and that systems. And something that they had back in the day were called quality circles. 
Now, quality circles were, were all about learning and understanding how work happened and how processes could be improved and, and basically, you know, process variations reduced and, and unintended events um, from, a, from a quality perspective could actually be, uh, be mitigated or at least minimized so you didn't get these high consequence outcomes. So working in the motor team, I had no clue that, you know, years later that uh, I'd be coming across things that, gee, that sounds like quality circles. And then you know, going through in, in that space, then you start to understand, you know, the power of people and, and that work in reality is different sometimes to how work is written down. And we found a lot of, of things back in the day where, in, particularly in a, in, in a very process heavy, very sort of standardized, rigid manufacturing system, that half the time the system was the problem and the people just did workarounds because they had to, to build cars. It became as simple as that, or whether it was building the, uh, the bearings for aero engines. Uh, and so then the, the Japanese sort of managed to, to culminate that and actually turn that into an improvement cycle. And then later on through, through Kaizen and everything else in terms of those teams and, and, and lately, latterly, you know, getting leaders to, to again, do something in, in our organizations, um, un, you know, understanding work in reality, sort of doing Gemba walks, you know, from Gembutsu, from the Japanese, you know, real learning, right? So real life, go out and understand. And we started doing that uh, back in, um, in about 2015. Um, and and we, we really didn't call them learning teams. We just got leaders to understand, wouldn't it be better if we knew a little bit more how things worked around here? And actually to put their ego away and, uh, and, and help them to learn. That was a real challenge because the more, the more senior you get in an organization, of course, then the, the biggest barrier to learning becomes an individual's ego because normally they've aspired or, or acquired that position through they know everything, they're the brightest, smartest, they've done every job in the, in the factory or in the plant or in the terminal or on the construction site. So they know everything. And they obviously, the, more, the, the further they get away from, from the work in reality is the less they understand, but they still think they know everything. So that whole piece for me around going through this from, from, from quality circles through Kaizen, through um, you know, the sort of Gumbutsu, gumbutsu and, and then really into learning teams through an, a, a realization that within, within particularly within, within the, the shipping industry, which was, is, is still sort of relatively immature in this space when it comes to employee engagement and people involvement. You know, most, most maritime vessels are, you know, the captain is the only voice that tells you what to do and you, everybody else just, just does what he says, whether it's right or wrong. It's not really a democracy. Um, now, some people are going to, you know, get all, all, all up and down about that, but that's the, that's the reality. And, you know, the old style the maritime captains will tell you that, that that's the way it was. And so when you translate that across an organization, then breaking that culture of, you know, very strong, heavy, top, top down, um, do as I say, telling leadership style instead of listening and understanding, it's, it's quite a challenge. But I guess, you know, moving on from that into where, we, where, where we've been in the last um, two or three years is really trying to, to do learning teams without putting a big flag up or running up a banner saying, hey, we're doing learning teams. It's about integrating the concept of learning from the people who really do the work and understanding the challenges they face and supporting them and helping them deliver solutions um, in a way that fits the work, the way the work is organized, the way the organization is organized, the way the organization thinks, lives, breathes, behaves. 
because the last thing I know from my experience that I wanted to do was was go away and run up another run up another trumpet and go oh, here we go um, we're going to do something new and it's called learning teams um, and and I think we've had more success by by implementing things in that way by making it part of something else and core to what the business philosophy is and then tro almost Trojan horsing some of this stuff in than, than actually, you know, saying we're going to run this program. Right. And, and just sort of um, that whole notion about uh, in maritime sector, that whole concept called command and control. Yeah. You know, that very hierarchical thing. That, that exists in other industries as well. For instance, like healthcare. Yes. We've always had the tradition there, surgeons, charge nurses, nurses, operating crews, all the rest of it. Um, and that type of command and control environment, where do you think the opportunities for learning teams sort of sits? Or, or, or how do we how do we get those people to move away from that command and control to basically that sort of shared learning journey? What were your experiences around that using learning teams? I, I think asking asking those those um, senior leaders what were they expecting of people? You know, one of the things that people always say is you know be clear on your expectations. Good good leadership and 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 at that at that level is about make clear your expectations, inspire people, and 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 make them understand what you want from them. And when you start to, to talk to them, they, they, couldn't really, they couldn't really put it into words in terms of what their expectations were of their people other than do the job right. So what, what is the job, right? And, and you explore it that way and you, you sort of break it down in a, in, in a completely different way rather than telling them they're doing it wrong. You say, what's good about what they, what they, the way that things are now, but what would make it better? And you know, how would they want to change things if they had the opportunity? And the first thing, that most of the maritime captains told us was, do you know what? Reduce the admin on us, reduce the administrative burden. Then we could go and talk to people a bit more. We could actually do the leadership stuff you want us to do if you took away the admin. Um, so, well, what admin? He said, well, you know, whether it's uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the staff wrote us, the timesheets, the changes, the shift changes, the safety stuff, the risk assessment stuff, all that. So, you know, it, it, it just gets in the way and takes up all of our time I don't have any time left to go out and actually talk to the crew or talk to the teams that are doing work and understanding their challenges. So often they are left to their own devices to figure out solutions. And knowing that, you know, senior leadership, captains, very busy people because of all this uh, management thinking and, 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 and all the MBA stuff and all, all, all the systems and admin that we've placed on them. They, they tend to go, well, you know what, they're, they're, they're just going to get really upset with us if we don't figure it out. So let's go figure it out. And once you, you break that, that paradigm from the captains that said, you know, do you really understand what's going on versus what you think, then um, if we give you time, if we give you what you ask for, which is reduce admin, what, could, what are you going to do with the time? And they said, we're going to go out and talk to the people. So that's what we did. We reduced their admin. And then we held them to account when we said, but you're still not talking to your people. Because then they just filled the time that we, we freed up for them with other, you know, I don't know, you know, sort of a normal admin management day-to-day -day stuff because that's what they were used to. So we had to physically sort of coach them to the point to say and, and almost hold their hand. And we went on a number of vessels and went through, through, through a lot of systems with them that talking about you know, how, to, how to actually go back and talk to people. Because the art of conversation between between people has been has been lost somewhere in in in, in business process, uh, and that's a real problem for us. You know, wh whether you're talking about management systems or process systems or organisational effectiveness or all that, 
most of it has been born out of you know um, reliability it's been born out of the reducing variations and stuff like that and, and 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 all the you know the sort of quality tools and everything we did through six sigma and everything else in the 90s the art of talking to people is as is 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 dying and we wanted to get them into a space where we could actually we could actually get them to have good conversations again there was another driver there was another driver though in that we we changed our we changed our employee engagement survey we'd had the same survey for gee i must have been five to ten years and everything was always very happy you know we always got great responses out of our eighty-seven thousand people in mesk around we get sort of you know somewhere between 90 and 95 percent completion rate um but in 2017 we changed for, to the gallup g12 survey and we came, we got a massive shock the organization got a huge kick in the butt because basically what it told us was the employees said you don't care about us it was as simple as that you know the the the, the question that says my my suit my manager cares about me was the 29th percentile it was appalling and the organization tried to justify it away but the reality was that People just felt that, you know, you just don't care about us. You just use us and abuse us. And that's really where the, the, the recognition that, you know, the leadership style had to change to, to actually start listening and not just telling. And I think that's really important. And, and sort of going back to that whole thing about the art of the conversation, I mean, it's a skill. And if we don't, if we don't keep applying the skill, we lose that skill. Which sort of yeah. leads me to that whole thing about... Um, what, what makes a successful learning team's facilitator? And we use the word facilitator because at the end of the day, someone has to basically um, uh, support or lead a learning team. Um, the, the first thing, I, yeah, I, I totally agree. But the first thing I would say from our experience is don't make it the supervisor, the team leader, the, the, the manager or whoever, right? The leadership does. Because that's often who ends up doing this. And then, you know, th th that, that sort of stifles the conversation. We always ask for a volunteer from the teams that, that we're working with and saying, who, who wants to facilitate this session? And, and we, we used particularly, we took a different spin on it. We wanted to solve some big problems, um, in, particularly in, in, our, in our tugboat industry in Switzer. And we wanted to get things done quick. So we used a different sort of learning teams methodology where we applied the sort of design sprint methodology to it. So we were going from, from, from nothing to a, a prototype, if you like, in five days. So how, how to actually change something uh, and using the sort of, you know, the original Google Sprint methodology, which was obviously applied to, to a lot of, uh, of technology-based organization software development. And we coupled that with agile thinking. And, and so we created this sort of design sprint agile framework that learning teams fitted into. Um, there, was a, there was something around doing it that way um, and actually talking about it as a group without having a, an overall leader, just having a facilitator that could ask the right questions that, not that didn't come necessarily from that team or really understood the, the challenge or the problem because they could focus on facilitating the actual event, the five days, rather, rather than actually you know, be in charge of the pen and writing the solutions on the board without anybody being, uh, uh, having the courage to challenge them. So we used members of, of my team who were skilled in running design sprints to go and be facilitator. And they came from banking, right? They came from banking and pharmaceuticals. They had no idea about, you know, um, mooring of tug lines or towing or anything like that. 
So they were ideal because they could ask the stupid questions innocently without fear of uh, being being ridiculed. So it was interesting. So basically what you're saying there is that you, you took a pe- uh, group of people that already had those uh, pre-existing skills around facilitation. Yes. And and just simply acknowledging that, that the role of a facilitator is not to be the expert in it. Yeah. They don't have to have the knowledge about what it is they're doing. What they need is that skill to basically support people in discovery. Yep. Um, but but more importantly, uh, is, a, is about supporting people to reflect in that. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, that they were skilled and experts in, uh, in, in, in running design sprint methodologies, right, or agile workshops, as, as we use in, the, in, in that word. So that's where their skill was. Um, they didn't need to know anything about the challenge or the, the problem that they were, you know, they were helping the teams think through. The expertise was round the table. That's what mattered. But bringing in that independent facilitator with that expertise made a huge difference. Now, of course, on day one, there's a lot of people looking at these people and say, what are these people doing here? What do they know about, about what we're doing? Why, why are they here in this room? By day five, it's saying, oh, my God, how invaluable was having somebody who knew nothing about the problem? Because then we all felt that we got listened to. Um, that was the biggest feedback that, that we got, I would say, in the early days from running learning teams in that way with those independent facilitators, experts in, in, in running those, uh, those sessions, was people finally felt that somebody was listening to them and it wasn't just management or leadership shutting them down when, uh, when they came up with a difficult challenge. And that's powerful, uh, a person feeling valued feeling part of the process, feeling part of the solution. That's very, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I remember uh, the guys getting phone calls about um, going back, the people who were involved in the early days in, in, in the pilots that we ran um, just, just sort of proof of concept. Um, we got all manner. We did it in about four or five different geographic locations. We started off in Australia. We went through, we went through India and went through Africa and we went through um, South America and in Europe and the more the word spread, you know, we would get calls and emails from, from, from workers saying, why wasn't I invited? I, you know, I wanted to be involved in that. I would have loved to have been involved in that. And all of a sudden, you, you know, people felt that there was a movement going on where there was a, a vehicle for the first time without leadership being present in the room. Um, there, was, there was somebody that could have helped them get a voice and be listened to. So that was extremely powerful. And, and it, was, it was great testament to the, to the team that, that put that together um, to come back with that feedback. Uh, and that created us another problem because then, you know, you can't run a, a million learning teams with two, with, with two coaches, right? That's so you've got to build capacity somewhere. And then you have to go, okay, now we need to build some capacity. We need to actually have some talent and some experts that can go and do this. Because these two people, that wasn't their main purpose in life. You know, that was a skill that they brought. It was one of those aha moments that we had when we looked at innovation and, and, and didn't know that the two people we had in the team were capable of running those sort of workshops. But what that led us to was a, a, an almost a strategic decision to say competence in, in running good learning teams is one of the core things that, that we needed to build on. Right. And, and I think that's the thing we were touching on slightly earlier was that, you know, part of that challenge is how to embed learning teams as part yeah. of your everyday operational environment. Yeah. And what were some of the things yeah, that you encountered? I, 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 as, as, a, as a very 
sort of complex business like most multinationals are, um, Maersk had got a, a number of different opportunities and businesses running, whether it was, you know, inland, on the sea, as ports and terminals. And each, each business had come from a space where, you know, extensively they, they had their own operating system and ways of working because you, you couldn't just go away and, and run the same operating system on, on, on the ships on the sea as you'd need to run warehouses uh, in inland or actually the ports and terminals. So one size was not going to fit all. It wasn't a case of saying, thou shalt do learning teams and we'll just, we'll just basically paint everybody the same color, start at one end and finish at the other. It was a case of being able to understand each part of the business, what they were already doing, and being able to fit the concept of the lear what learning teams is all about into something that, that they would recognize as, as they had a big appetite for. You know, there were some big change agendas and transformation agendas going on in Maersk, and our sole directive was to to get a part of that that get get a piece of that pie, right, uh, and and not to actually try and steal the whole pie because we knew we were never going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So we were okay, and and we were you know quite reflective on this and saying we will take um, a concept of whether they're doing kaizen teams or or. or or, or circles or learning teams or improvement teams or whatever it is they're doing or agile teams as they were in marketing and in IT. We will take that and we will help them understand how that is almost very analogous to, to running learning teams and maybe just tweak it a little bit or add a little bit of an ingredient here and there. So we weren't actually putting another activity or, or had it asking them to learn yet another, uh, another approach to something. We were adapting the concept of learning teams to suit the way the business wanted it. So it's just like we talked about, about learning, you know, people learn in different ways, some visual, some read, some reflective, some actually learn by doing. If you try and train and educate everybody in the same way, some people will get it, others you'll leave behind. Yeah. All we did with, with learning teams was to figure out where the appetite was within the business for what they were already doing and seeing where we could, we could uh, leverage that and use that to our own objectives. So we were quite underhand in some cases. We would Trojan horse things in. We would be slightly, uh, you know, we, we would be underhand sometimes. Uh, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't tell the whole truth sometimes. But what it did do was it allowed us to integrate and embed into normal everyday life a thinking and a philosophy that normally, you know, there'd been uh, three years of debate around why this is not going to work or, you know, we did this five years ago. So we, we, weren't, we weren't too proud to, uh, to, to actually, you know, be, be play second fiddle or be, be that humble to think that we weren't the most important people in the room. And it's interesting, I, I was recently reading a, uh, a, a, a book of um, a, a, about uh, the reflections of uh, an individual who had been involved with Toyota for over 30, 40 years. And basically, uh, he was simply sharing this thing about that reflective process is just so important, taking that time to be able to reflect on where you've come from and, and how that got lost when, when a lot of the American organizations were implementing Lean, that they, yeah. that they took it as a tool in actual yeah. fact, the most important thing was that reflective process. That yeah. that, 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 that Gimba, what, what wasn't about a, a process that managers were, were to have to undertake, it was about them being able to see something and then reflect on what they saw and, and take learnings from that. So I, I think this whole thing around, you know, the learning element, but also the reflective element, if, if we don't have that reflective component, 
we're going to struggle to make it that everyday activity. Yeah, and I, I you know, I, I've, I've helped a lot of um, organize, uh, leaders within organizations and mentored people outside. And one of the first questions I asked them, is said, you know, you know how's, your, how's your reflection skills? And I said, what do you mean? You know, I said, how often do you reflect? You know, well, you know, sometimes I do it in the end of the day in the car and it's not enough, right? You know, how, do, you, do you diarize it? Do you take time out your day? Not at the end of the day, but almost, you know, when it suits you to reflect. Because, again, you know, you talked about, the, I think you mentioned this earlier, Brent, about doing something, you know, you have to practice it. You have to do it more regularly. Reflection is, is, is no different. And people don't know how to reflect. I mean, some, some people have a natural skill and ability to do that and are quite reflective people. Um, most business leaders I come across, they're, they're the sort of archetypal leader, you know, strong, driven, going to run a charge over the hill and hopefully, you know, look back in, in, in a year's time and everybody's still behind them. Uh, and they take very little time to reflect. And yet one of the most uh, skillful leaders that I worked for um, would, would, people thought he never made decisions. Um, but what the decisions he made were to, to plan and reflect, plan and reflect, plan and reflect. And then when it came to execution, the execution was flawless. So the time to market of any given product, and I saw him, him working this way with his leadership team. Whereas in, in Europe, we would go um, planning cycle, very short, execution, fail, you know, go back, start again. And you'd go three or four times around that loop. And then you'd watch the competitors from, uh, from, from Asia doing this and their reflective ability on planning, 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 and then flawless execution. The product was cheaper, faster, better, smarter, and got to market in a, in a much more timely manner than anything we could do in Europe. And I think that's, that's the key is that just being able to execute effectively or charge over the hill is something that, you know, is, is to me is very 1990s management style now. What we need now are, are, are leaders who can care and reflect and, and understand uh, the, the, the reality of what's going on. Because our, our people and our organizations are constantly bombarded with, with, with increasing levels of complexity and, and, and unknown unknowns, right? And we, we all laughed at Rumsfeld all those years ago when he coined that phrase, the unknown unknowns, right? Mm -hmm. and so what, what, what jargon is this? And I think now we're beginning to realize what he meant by unknown unknowns, right? And we talk about black swan events now and VUCA world and all this. Hey, welcome, welcome to normal work, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's starting to kick in is people realizing that you can't control everything and you can't prescribe everything and you're not in control to a degree that you think you are. You know, you are at the mercy of a lot of other bigger ecosystems that you just managed to, to survive in. And if you're not adaptable and flexible and you can't reflect, learn and be agile, then you're not going to be around much longer. And, and we think there's a strong correlation between being able to critically reflect, which I think is different to reflecting, being able to critically reflect, which means that it's an, it's an intentional act. You, you are knowingly wanting to reflect. And we think there's a connection between that and critical thinking. I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I would argue, I, I don't think you could separate the two, to be honest, sure. because if, if, you think about, if you think about critical thinking in, in this world today, you know, um, how, many, how, many, how many times a year or how many times a decade do, does your organization change its strategy? Most go, we've got a five-year plan and we're going to stick to it, right? Come, come hell or high water. Most organizations today are not planning much more than, 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 than three months ahead. 
because they don't have the visibility. And that critical thinking and that reflective nature means that that becomes more important because everything is changing constantly. And you, you have to be, you have to, you have to be reflective now in critical thinking. If you don't have that as a, as a core skill today, then I, I don't think you're going to make good decisions going forward. Yeah. And what we've seen, Kevin, is that uh, through the uh, uh, process of learning teams and engaging the workforce and learning teams, uh, workers seeing that repetitive c component of reflecting and thinking, what, what we're beginning to see is actually it's building those critical thinking skills at the workforce end as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, the, the amount of times that, you know, workers, when, when being a safety person sometimes has its benefits, right? Because um, you, you're not seen as the management and, and you're not quite seen as workers. So sometimes you can be, you know, the agony aunt or the critical friend and, you know, they'll roll their eyes at management around, you know, we've been asked to do this again and ha, ah, this is, this is not reality. Um, and, and I think we, we, we have missed so many opportunities over the years to, to engage with our employees. You know, I, I remember that we've even had legislation in certain parts of the world that sort of thou shalt, you know, have safety committees or thou shalt um, consult with your employees. If we have to resort to a legal requirement to talk to the people who work with us, Jesus, we're in a bad shape, man. I mean, that is not good. You know, and over the years, all I've ever done is, is I've never been, you know, very good at a lot of things. But one thing is, is, is being able to go out, listen and learn and, and actually get people to talk to me and tell, tell me what they're doing just out of sheer ignorance and stupidity, I guess. But, but you know, I've often, it's often frustrated the hell out of me that you know, we, we've had to have those things written in law. And they're saying, why, why, can't, why, can't, why can't you see this, right? Why, why can't you just see that talking to your people is something you'd want to do anyway? Well, look, I, I, and I think, you know, once again, we, we just use the language about being curious. Yeah. And, and I, I, I have another theory behind that, right? Is sure. curiosity has been driven out of us because we've, came, we've come to rely on, on, on processes, right? We've come to be told that, you know, process standardization and, and repetitive, you know, repetitive and process validation and variate, reduction of variation. You don't need to think, you just need to do. Mm. And the more yeah. you can squeeze, the more you can squeeze, you know, the better you're going to get. So you don't have to be curious. All you need to keep checking and validating, checking and validating, you know, what gets measured gets done. You know, these are adages that were okay in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s even maybe. But today, you, you, you can't work like that. You know, as, as a leader, if you're working like that, then, you know, you, you're, you, you're stuck somewhere in, in the last century. And that's not helpful to, to any organization with, with the, uh, the challenges that the, the teams face, whether it is for, you know, operational resilience or, or excellence, whether it's about safety or it's about quality or even, you know, delivering a good bloody product to your customer at the end of the day. Oh, absolutely. You know, I remember when we were doing some uh, background research into writing the book, The Practice of Learning Teams, uh, we, we were looking at, uh, you know, part of Deming's original cycle. And, yeah. and he was saying, um, plan, do, study and apply. He wasn't saying yeah. check. No. That, that got that got that got turned around through through management speak as i said you know yeah. I, I think we've missed the point a lot uh, over history and, and people to uh, I, I don't know right M maybe maybe i'm just a, a an iconoclast at heart and i just like you know poking things for the fun of it or oh, because it makes me curious about why 
But I think that we, we've gone from a point of, well, I didn't invent that, so I'm going to adapt it and I'm going to change it to something that puts my name on it, that gets me an angle to tell something different. And if you look at all that, right, and, and all the times that that whole original Deming study and everything's got changed and got poo-pooed by the West uh, in, in the early days and everything else that happened to it. And he took it to the Japanese and they embraced it. Mm-hmm. And that, that learning and studying thing became the biggest thing. But even, even, even today, you know, we're still, we're still not learning the lessons from the past. And one of the, one of the critical things that, that I've learned about organizations in my 35-year career is that one of the weaknesses is learning. Organizations aren't great at learning. We all espouse to be learning and want to be a learning organization. We don't understand the process of learning in our own organizations. How does real learning happen? Real learning is not people going on training courses or attending seminars, right, or going to Harvard. Real learning is, is happens at the sharp end of the stick where work happens. That's where true learning comes in. And I think that's what we've missed. We've misread and misunderstood. Learning is something that belongs in you know, the, the learning and development department or the HR department, rather than learning being a, a thing that everybody does. Yeah, and, and look, one of the things that we explored was um, we, we, we took a different view around uh, operational learning. What yeah. we basically talked about with learning teams is that uh, you're looking for opportunities for learning. But when you're looking for those opportunities, there's a complete difference between what workers learn from that and what the organization learns. They're very different things. Mm. And I mean, you, you've got to yeah. have the intention. You've got to have the intention that, that learning um, can't be incidental, which is what happens a lot, that learning has to be deliberate. Mm. And, and, what yeah, and it has, it's, yeah. it's a it's a conscious choice, right? But yeah. you have to create you have to create the environment for learning. If you just tell people, you know, in in the normal way that we would do it in an organisation, right? You know, you, you're going to go and you're going to run end of shift briefings, or you're going to run pre start briefings, and you're going to do that, and then you're going to learn. It's like you know what? If you told me when I was when I was like thirteen, fourteen, that you got to go and study in your room, Kevin, that was the last thing I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You can't tell people when they're going to learn. People will learn through their, their own natural ways, whether they feel it's right to learn. And I, and I think we, we don't provide people in our organizations the right um, conditions to, to learn. I think we just expect it to go on in a transactional, you know, sort of perfunctory way that, that actually becomes a ticking box exercise and, and doesn't impact or affect anybody uh, any any material change in any way, shape, or form? Did you have a learning team? Yes. Oh, good. Let me count the number of learning teams. You know, I remember we went we were we went to with with um, we went to Chevron and and you know Dave and Dave Dave Hammonds and, and and those guys there they did a brilliant job. One of the things that really worried me though was you know that their measure of success of learning teams or how many learning teams they were going on. Right. You know, that's just to me it was just a measure of of quantity, not quality. And it was like you're falling into the danger of people meeting targets on learning teams through ticking boxes. And, and that's exactly where we've been with scorecards and safety and whatever it is we're looking for is you give somebody a target who's, who's been to management school, you know, they know what's connected to it. You know, they can intellectualize the argument and they're, they're going to actually meet that target. They won't ever measure the, the impact that that, that that exercise has had. I, I, and, and that's a challenge. Yes, well, the, well, the metric shouldn't be the measurement. The metric should be the monitoring. The metric should be the um, how it's been applied. And and and, and we explore this notion that that 
uh, you know, workers are really good at problem solving and, and we need to encourage them to do those things. But the, the next thing, and it goes back to the whole concept of lean about waste, that making oh. an improvement, you need to understand, did the improvement do what you thought it would do? Yeah. If it didn't, you've got two choices. That's binary, get rid of it or improve it. Yeah, and this is where this is where the sort of the, the sprint workshops and the agile methodology comes in, right? People want, you know, you, you go from saying we want we want we want to produce the car, you know, and this is brilliant, and this is an agile an agile sort of theory thing. He's like, no, no, what you need is a fit for purpose product now, and what you need is you you need uh, a skateboard, right? So in the short term, we'll give you a skateboard because that'll get you going, and then what do you want after that? Your minimum viable product, right? Something that will get you moving. And then over time, you can build that. Then you progress from the skateboard to a scooter that's got handlebars, then to a bicycle and a motorbike. And then finally, you get to the car. Uh, and this is how technology has managed to you know, be so effective so quickly and take over our lives because they figured out, the people behind, the smart people in the sector, in the technology sector, figured out that you know, instead of waiting, waiting, waiting for a product, what you needed to do was get another product on the market, okay. get another product, then get an improvement, then get the next one. Because what you generate from that is more excitement, motivation, enthusiasm for, for what you're doing. And I think in, particularly in, in, in safety, you know, we've been always wait, 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 end result, right? And then nobody wants it and it doesn't wit and it doesn't work properly. And then it's crap, it's this, it doesn't do what we're supposed to do because it's not built in reality because you haven't had the user experience. And the one thing that we learned from, from our learning team's experience was if you don't get the user feedback, anything you do is just as bad as what you did before. So taking the user's information, how they're using it and utilizing the power and processes and the activities of learning teams, if it ain't working for them, don't keep blithely carrying on you regardless, right? Change it, dump it, do something different. Yeah. Don't just be a slave to, you know, to, to, to another process that you, 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 you're almost trying to, I guess it's, what am I trying to say? It's sort of counterintuitive to do that with learning teams when everything we're talking about is trying to get to, cut the crap and get to what really matters. But it's about evolving and it's, a, it's that journey. It's that journey. So yeah. um, Kevin, um, you, you're now operating your own um, firm called Adaptive Safety. Yes. Uh, colleague. Um, what do you see as the, um, the future of learning teams and your new venture? I, I think co-creation is something that, that, that we want to work on is that I know I've, I've employed consultants over my career and I've employed some good ones and, and you know, I've, I've smiled sweetly at the not so good ones and, you know, and, and, and waved them bye bye. What, one thing that I'm sure of is that, you know, selling people something that they want, snake oil, whatever you want to call it, you know, off the shelf packages is, is not the way forward. I think people know what their challenges are. What they need is, someone they can trust, someone who has a bit of, um, give them a bit of certainty that they're on the right path and doing the right things. And actually, in, 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 in the concept of adaptive, what we're looking at is our, our sort of philosophy is we work through people, we co-create, and we fast-track learning. Everything we do is about learning. And we're not, we're not saying, you know, you know do, do HOP or do HPI or do safety differently. It's about how do you learn? What do you want to get better at? Where can we help you co-create? And what can we do that will fast track some of that into reality through this sprint agile methodology that we think will be 
easily transferable into a lot of industries. It's not just for software developers. I've, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it used in marketing. I've seen it used in manufacturing. I've seen it used now in operations. And, and, and trust me, you know, being that agile today is something that, that we all need to be if we're going to survive and prosper and be resilient with, uh, with everything that the world's going to throw at us today. So that's really our, our sort of standpoint on this, Brent. And um, it's early days. Um, we're having conversations with a lot of organizations who think like us. Um, it's tough uh, because of the, the sort of ongoing um, external situation that everybody finds themselves in. Um, but we're not going to let that stop us. Um, we, we want to help organizations who want to go on this journey. And one of the things that we bring is the practical implementation experience. We, we don't just bring more thinking and theory. We've got the bruises and the scars. We've had the butt kicked. You know, we, we've had them made our ears bleed through whatever from, from workers and from leadership. We know, we know what we can do to, to help. And we've worked across a lot of different industries doing this. So I think we can, we can help with some of that fast track learning. Yeah. And, and I think we touched on earlier, it's about taking it from that what to the how. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the that's the challenge, right? Because yeah. there's some brilliant there's some brilliant guys who have inspired me, and you know we've used them, and I've used them personally to to help inspire and support um, you know the, the 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 influencing sessions I've done with boards and uh, and senior leadership teams, and and don't be as proud. My advice to anybody who's been in a senior safety position is, don't be frightened to go and talk to these guys or use them. You know they're not going to take your job off you. Um, they're there to help you and they want to support you. And I think that's the thing is don't be thinking that you know everything, that you, you can do this on your own. Often it takes an outside voice from a, a respected thought leader to complement what you're saying, to give those senior decision makers the certainty that this is the right thing to do. So don't shy away from engaging with them and asking them to help you. Um, that's the biggest mistake that a lot of people make is that they think, well, if they're coming in and asking then I'm going to look like I don't know what I'm doing. Therefore, you know, my ego gets battered. Therefore, people, I might get fired and they might give them the job. That's not going to happen. I guarantee it. Thank you, Kevin. And look, thank you very much for sharing your, uh, your learnings and your observations with our listeners today. No problem. I hope they got something useful out of it. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on, go to www.podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.